technology is great when it works, and when it doesn't, it's a headache, isn't it? So I know I, we wouldn't worry about it too much, but we do have some people that are not able to come to our church that do tune in every Sunday, and we really try to ha- have that available for them. So appreciate your patience there. All right, First Timothy, if you will, book of First Timothy. And uh, Paul is the author of this book, and uh, there, I'm going to make a couple statements here regarding authorship for just a moment. Because uh, in studying, if you ever take and, and find notes in people's uh, writings on, on Bible surveys or surveys of certain books of Scripture, you may come across something, and, and in this particular instance, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus are the last three books chronologically that the Apostle Paul writes just before his death, and um, he, uh, because of this this being the, the last three books, they're written a little bit different than the others. These are the only three books that are written exclusively to an individual. Now, Philemon was also written to an in, individual, but uh, was also for the purpose of other people reading it and gleaning some things from it. But specifically, First, Second Timothy, and Titus uh, are written literally to a specific person uh, for them. And... Uh, because of the way that the, the style of the writings are different, in the 19th century, uh, there's been a lot of dissension. A lot of people question whether Paul really did write this. The only reason I bring this up is it brings about a point that you and I need to be grounded on. And that is this. Look with me, if you will, in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ... By the commandment of God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith. Paul claims authorship of this book. Now, that brings up a very, very important issue that we must have nailed down, and that is this. When you go to study survey and you read people, these guys with doctor's degrees behind their names, and they pull out these 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 reasons and logics behind outside sources and structure of the book and language and they'll pull out linguistics of, of words and how they're used and how this isn't Paul's style and they'll say that this was a counterfeited book. Can I tell you this? We have it in our inspired, preserved, without error King James Bible. And as such, the only reason we need to say that Paul was the author of this is First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1 because the Bible says so. And it's okay to study and know some outside evidences and things that help support that. I don't think there's anything wrong with knowing those things. But don't let that become the basis of our belief that Paul was the author of this. Paul was the author of this because the Bible says he was. And so it brings about a very, very important issue for you and I, and that is either we trust every word in this book or we don't. And uh, so I just want to say that because we've talked about this throughout all of the surveys we've done, uh, there's been internal evidences, external evidences, and I think they're nice to know and they're great um, to have the knowledge of that. But all we need to know is that the Bible says it. And if the Bible says it, that's the only reason we need for it. Uh, so just wanted to kind of uh, say that because in the next uh, three books, or the, the first, second Timothy, and then when we get to Titus, um, th- this is going to be an issue. They, they do question, and if you read books on it, uh, you're going to find people that very strongly uh, oppose the idea that Paul was the author of these books. And you say, well, Pastor, which one is it? Was he or was he not? 
I'm going to defer to the Bible because I've trusted it all of my life. I believe every word in it is true and pure. And so there is no, in my, in my estimation of what I understand and what I believe about this book, there's no doubt in my mind Paul is the author of, this, of these letters. They're written specifically to some young men uh, that are pastoring and, and entering into the ministry. Uh, Paul considers Timothy specifically to be his son in the faith. So there was a very close relationship with Paul and Timothy. And while he had other fellow uh, laborers and fellow yoke fellow that were very close to him, uh, I believe that the closest relationship Paul had was with, with uh, Timothy, and uh, that he was kind of the, the, the mentor to him and uh, strengthening him in some things. This is the first of the, of the last three letters that Paul writes, and takes place probably, the best we can tell, somewhere between uh, his first and his second imprisonment in Rome. Uh, he is released from his first imprisonment, and from there... <coughs> Excuse me. He travels first uh, to Ephesus, uh, and um, he sends Timothy to uh, Philippi. And then, after a period of time, he has Timothy come and join him at Ephesus. And then they kind of swap places. And then Paul, once Timothy gets there, leaves and goes to Philippi himself and travels to some of the churches in Macedonia. Uh, more than likely, while he's in Corinth. Uh, is the location where he wrote this book. We don't know for certain, but there's some evidence towards that, uh, that he wrote this letter to Timothy after leaving him in Ephesus and saying, Timothy, I need you to stay here. The reason he was doing this, Ephesus was, was a hotbed for Christianity uh, in those days, but some very serious doctrinal issues were coming up. They were uh, One of the, the, the steady themes of doctrinal error in the early church was uh, the misuse of and the misapplication of the Mosaic Law in light of the New Testament church and how it functioned. Uh, and they continued to bring in works. They kept, they kept bringing works into this thing. And by the way, we're living in a day where there's only two types of religions, faith alone or works. And you can categorize every religion you want to into one of those two families and that same age-old battle all the way back to the Apostle Paul's time is the battle we still face in combat today as far as uh, doctrinal error <coughs> and false teachers. So we have to be very, very careful of this. Uh, and so Paul, when he first gets to Ephesus, I believe he's dealing with all the doctrinal error pretty much himself, and he does that when he uh, is, is there. But when Timothy comes and then he leaves Timothy there, it seems to be from chapter 5 and verse number 1. In fact, take a moment to look at that verse for a moment. Uh, it seems to give an in indication that there were some... Um, okay, let me back up just a minute. <laughs> so, so there are different uses sometimes of different words. We, we understand and know that sometimes when the Bible uses the word elder, uh, it's talking about a position, a uh, pastoral position perhaps, or a leadership position in the church. Other times when it uses the term elder, it's simply referring to someone who's elderly that, that has, is up in years, and in age, and the only way you know that is by <coughs> the context of the passage. And so Paul gets to chapter five and verse one, and he says this: "Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren." And so we understand from this verse that he's not speaking here of the title of pastor, because Timothy at that point was essentially the one pastoring the church or in leadership of the church. He's referring here to the age, and we know that because the contrast of that was. Not only was he to treat the elder with certain 
elders with a certain uh, level of respect, but he was to treat and a certain level of, of relationship. But he's also to treat the younger. And so he uses the, the, the contrast here of the elder and the younger. So we know he's dealing here with age. And so it seems that um, Timothy was having some trouble with some older men in the church, older fellows that, I guess because of their years, felt that they were more mature or more founded in doctrine than Timothy was. And they were in trying to introduce <coughs> doctrinal error. And Timothy was trying to hold the line and to be firm and stand uh, steadfast in the, in the doctrine that Paul had taught him. And these men were leaving the church. They were causing a problem. They were causing strife. And, and Paul tells Timothy, he says, listen, you, you need to treat these men with respect as a family member, uh, but you need to make sure that you don't let them intimidate you. You've got to stand fast and uh, preach, preach uh, regardless of the fact, sound doctrine to them. Uh, and so this is kind of the, uh, the thrust of the book. Paul is encouraging Timothy in two, well, really three main areas uh, <clears throat> to stand firm in his spiritual leadership in the church, to establish that. Uh, secondly, he, he teaches Timothy or exhorts Timothy, encourages Timothy to teach God's Word in sound doctrine and to make sure that uh, he's, he's dealing with uh, the truth of doctrine and, and making that a primary thing. And then the third thing was uh, to live godly, to live righteously, and to have the right kind of conduct <coughs> in the church. And so Paul pretty much tells Timothy, these are some things you need to have in your life. These are things you need to work on, you need to hold fast to. Now, he does this by giving five different charges to Timothy. We find those throughout the book. And so we're going to look at these five different charges um, that Paul charges Timothy with. Uh, The first one that he deals with is found in chapter 1. Let's look in verse number 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 18, he says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwrecked, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. <coughs> and he goes on to talk about his conduct towards them. But he talks about the fact that he needs to have a good warfare. And uh, that he needs to combat false teaching uh, that was uh, being, being uh, swayed here, as we see in verse number 19. Of whom summing, uh, have, some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. So these are folks that have left the faith. They've tried to take people with them when they went. And um, then he encourages them, uh, Timothy, uh, to, to stay uh, steadfast and to continue to teach without wavering in his conduct and uh, in his doctrine. He does that throughout uh, the most of chapter number 2, uh, dealing with, uh, with Timothy's conduct towards these folks. Um, and then there's two things that he deals with here. The first part of chapter 2, he speaks about the fact um, in verse number 4, who will have all men, uh, speaking of, uh, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and, notice this, 
to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. <coughs> a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up, look at this, and I watch carefully, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, charity, holiness, and sobriety. And so we find an exhortation to the men, for Timothy to teach the men, that they are to have two things. They are to have effectual praying in their public worship. He says in verse number 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The idea that men are to lead in the area of uh, doctrine and the establishment of the practices of the church, and that they are to be the ones that are the teachers of sound doctrine. And so he deals with the fact that they are to have effectual praying, powerful, fervent praying. It ought to be a part of public worship. Um, our prayers in the time that we come together as a church need to be effectual prayers. Not just ceremonial prayers, not just prayers we uh, go through. I don't like when I go to a church and they read a pre-written prayer. Uh, I don't know that that's scriptural or that's biblical. What we do find are men that are pouring their hearts out to the Lord and praying fervently and effectually. <coughs> he also talks about the fact, and he, and he points this one more to the women, that while men are to lead in the, the public worship and in the teaching of, of sound doctrine, that women are to express themselves by godly living. Notice in verse number 9, In like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly way, which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. So while he teaches that men are to be the upholders of doctrine in the church, that women are to be the ones that also are strong in setting a godly example in the church. And uh, he tells Timothy, these are some things I want you to, to deal with and make sure that the church is sound in these areas. Then the second charge he gives him, <coughs> and uh, when he gets to chapter uh uh, when he gets into chapter 2 regarding the, the men and the women, but also in chapter 3, uh, he deals with the importance of the inner quality of godliness, and he does so by addressing characteristics that ought to be found in a bishop and characteristics that ought to be found in a deacon. By the way, uh, let me just say this. It's fine to hold uh, some standards to men in leadership in our churches. But can I tell you this, that if it is godly for a pastor and if it is godly for a deacon, I'm going to help you with something. It is also godly for everyone that sits in the pew of a church. And so these guidelines, while they certainly should characterize leadership in a church, they also ought to be characterized in each of our lives. Notice when we get to verse number 1 of chapter 3, it says, This is a true saying, 
If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. Well, that's a tough one to follow, isn't it? <coughs> Hard to be blameless, isn't it? Is Paul instructing here that a bishop or a pastor, a leader of the church, is to be sinless and perfect without sin? Is that what he's talking about here when he says blameless? No, he's characterized by his character as being one who there's not a whole lot that sticks to him. He lives godly enough with a godly enough example that uh, even when evil is spoken of, it's very uh, hard to uh, pin it on them or to cause people to believe it because they have a testimony that characterizes their life as being above reproach. That would be good for every Christian to take a hold of, that we would live above reproach. Uh, there are things that are lawful to us. There are things that certainly we have the right to do. But are they expedient? For the sake of testimony, are they expedient? For the sake of the way other people view and look at us, is it expedient to us to, to be able to exercise that liberty? Or, as Paul often teaches, are there sometimes that you and I must forego the liberty that we've been given? Now, it doesn't mean that we're wrong not to. But by choice, is it not wise sometimes for us to forego some liberty so that we can be a godly example to others? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. There are times that that's, that's the case. That it is much wiser to forego our Christian liberties in some areas than to go through with them and cause a stumbling block for someone else. Notice he says, the husband of one wife. Uh, it's interesting. We've tell, dealt and talked about that uh, before in regards to uh, the idea of being divorced and remarried, uh, the fact that uh, a lot of times when it comes to the husband of one wife, uh, some people think, well, that means that they have to be married. Uh, yet there are men that, that serve for many, many years whose wives die, they pass away, and yet we are okay if they get another wife and continue on in their ministry, or even if they decide that God does not have another wife for them, still for them to continue in ministry. So Paul's not making this something that they have to have a wife, uh, but if and when they do have a wife, that they are a, uh, a man who is uh, solely dedicated to that one woman uh, to be uh, continuously uh, in, in uh, the mindset of um, not being flirtatious, not getting out here and uh, having problems with other uh, women around, uh, but they, that these, this husband uh, cleaves to his wife in that area that they are to be uh, vigilant, that they are to be... By the way, and, and again, each of these is a wonderful trait for all of us to have. The idea of being vigilant, there's uh, some things we've been teaching on the last year. <coughs> because if we're not careful, we become so separated, and we ought to be separated. The Bible tells us to be separated from the world, but sometimes we will so seclude ourselves that we will not be aware of the evils and the problems that are creeping up in our, in our world today, and as such, we will be um, many times naive to some of the things that could easily beset us and come upon us. And so we need to be vigilant. Uh, the Bible tells us to be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh through and fro, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is not out to hurt you. Excuse me. He's out to destroy you. And we need to be vigilant about those things. I think sometimes we get in our mindset that once we get saved and we join a good church, 
and we enjoy the fellowship of that church and we enjoy the teaching of that church, that we don't have to be on guard against sin. Yes, we do. Uh, we don't need to be on guard against the, the, the direction our world is going. Yes, we do. Because we're also to be the salt of this earth. We're to be light. So we need to be vigilant about the things of this world. Then we're to be sober. We're to be sober in this mindset. Uh, and I think one of the most sobering things is when we can live our lives with eternity in view. Uh, to continue to realize what's coming and to live in light of that. Uh, of good behavior, given the hospitality. Apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of deacon, being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So it's very important Paul uh, teaches Timothy to instruct these folks in the church, those that are in leadership position, and to make uh, good uh, leaders. Uh, in fact, in 2 Timothy, he says, "...the same commit thou to faithful men who are able to teach others likewise." And he exhorts Timothy that he is to help develop strong leadership in the church, and that that leadership is to be men-led... And it doesn't mean that women don't have a role. The women have a role to be examples of godliness in the church. And uh, to deal with, not that men are not to be godly, but women are to be the examples of that godliness uh, by their conduct, by the way they dress, by the way they conduct themselves. And then uh, he deals with uh, the third charge. Um, after he's dealt with the, their public worship, he deals with their third charge concerning false teachers. We find this in chapter number 4. Chapter 4, he says, Now the Spirit, verse number 1, speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And uh, so he talks about the fact that these got to be careful... <coughs> of false teachers. He deals with four areas. He deals with the issue of marriage. He deals with the issue of food, food that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, he deals with the issue of godliness and exercise and how that some uh, were making more of an emphasis on their bodily condition than they were about their inner man, their godly condition. And so he addresses that. And then he tells them not to neglect the spiritual gift that was given to him. 
in verse number 14 of chapter number 4. In fact, let's go back to verse 13 for uh, go back to verse 12 for a minute. <clears throat> Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. And again, here we find him encouraging him that these elders that are withstanding him or giving him a difficult time, don't be intimidated by them. Timothy had authority, not by reason of years, but by reason of the fact he had right doctrine. And when we teach folks, uh, we should not be intimidated by anything, uh, by men criticizing or being upset about or saying um, that we're wrong on the issue, because the authority we teach from is not our opinion. The authority we teach from is not our personal thoughts, and it's not of any private interpretation. But it is based upon the authority of sound doctrine. And if people get upset about that, then they'll have to get upset at the Lord because He's the one that wrote these things. Uh, and so he's telling Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And he's speaking here of his gift to preach and to administrate the church. And verse 15 says, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. And by the way, even though Timothy is the pastor here, and, and Paul is certainly charging him as the leader of this church uh, in Ephesus, I believe once again, this is a good policy, a good principle that every Christian ought to follow. That we meditate upon these things and give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And then he goes on to tell him how to treat these elders that were... Uh, contrary to him, that we're giving him a difficult time, uh, how he's to treat them <coughs> as a father, younger men as brethren, elder women as mothers, younger as sisters with all purity. And uh, then he deals with the issue that they were to <coughs> excuse me, honor the widows, and he gives some instructions about that, that the church is to care for the widows, that are widows indeed. And if these widows that are widows indeed have any family that can care for them, that the family should care for them before the church. And that the church would not have to be burdened by that need unless there was no family there. And uh, then the church would be uh, too, uh, responsible to uh, help the widow and to uh, deal with her and to try to, to take care of her. Uh, then secondly, uh, not only does he deal with the issue of widows, but he goes on down... Uh, to, let's see here. Uh, then he goes down to uh, verse number 17, and he deals with uh, elders that rule well to be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And then he says this, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So now he's going to deal with the subject of church discipline and the fact that there needs to be uh, two or three witnesses. We find this also spelled out a little more clearly in Matthew chapter 18, if you want to cross-reference to that. 
where Jesus himself teaches, and he expounds a little bit more on that. Uh, and then he says in verse number 22, Lay hands suddenly on no man. This is dealing with Timothy's conduct uh, towards them. He says, Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be a t- partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine altar and infirmities. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. Some men, uh, uh, they follow after. Likewise, also the good fruits of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. And so again, talking about uh, church discipline for those that do not follow after sound doctrine, and to uh, count those that labor in the word and in doctrine as worthy uh, of double honor. And so again, just trying to teach Timothy in this church as a younger preacher and some older men in the church that are trying to create problems for him. Timothy, these are the things you need to hold to. Don't be shaken in them. Don't let people despise your youth. This is true doctrine. Hold to it. Teach it. Show them how to deal with these things. And hold fast to this sound doctrine. And then the fifth charge that he gives him, of course, comes in chapter 6. This is concerning his motives as a pastor. And uh, he exhorts uh, those that would be pastor to be servants. And it's amazing there. Uh, I've talked with a few people about this sometimes. Uh, and I'm going to say this carefully because I don't, and I'm not going to name any names or point anybody out in specific. But there are some men who want the title and the authority of pastor for the prestige, I guess, that it brings to them, and they, they really should not be in the pastoral position. Their motivation is wrong. And it says here in verse number 6, in verse 1, "...let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit." These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmising, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. And so he warns against this idea of having wrong motivation in ministry and in leadership of churches, and exhorts them to be um, to be uh, godly in this area, and to be servants, to be minded as not wanting to lord over things, but to have a servant's heart. Uh, a number of years ago, some people coined a term uh, called uh, servant leadership, and uh, I like the term. It's not necessarily a biblical term, but it certainly is a biblical principle that those that are laboring in the Word and in doctrine and are leading churches ought to have a servant's uh, motivation about them, a servant's heart about them. Then he starts in verse number 6, dealing with another topic uh, regarding Timothy's motivation, and that is to be godly with contentment. And he tells him in verse number 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, certainly we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that be rich fall into temptation and a snare in, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred 
from the faith and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Notice it's not wrong to be rich, but it is wrong to love that and to strive for that and to make that your life's goal. And so he gives an exhortation uh, to Timothy, first of all, to be content, having food and raiment. Secondly, not to have a love for money. Uh, if God chooses to bless, to use it with a humble spirit and a servant spirit and being a good steward of what God has entrusted him, but to not have a covetousness towards money or a love for money, uh, that driving force that causes them to do everything they can to get more money. Uh, he warns against those things. And um, then he talks, uh, lastly, uh, to keep those things which had been committed to him. Look with me in verse number 20 of chapter 6. He says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, according to profane and vain babblings, uh, I'm sorry, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Uh, Amen. So five charges to Timothy. Paul knows he's coming towards the end of his ministry, the end of his road. He's left Timothy in a very, very difficult situation, a church that is struggling with doctrinal error and with elder men in the church that are trying to influence and pressure him uh, to not teach sound doctrine. Paul is concerned for Timothy, so he exhorts him, he encourages him, uh, Timothy, be sound in doctrine. Teach these things. Uh, make sure we lead the church rightly. Um, the time of Timothy, uh, we've already shared a little bit about that, uh, more than likely was written from Corinth about 67 A.D., and uh, Paul is just getting ready to be arrested for his second time in Rome. And as a result of the burning of Rome in, in uh, AD 64, uh, the preaching and teaching of Christianity was becoming more and more illegal. You could actually be arrested for it, imprisoned for it, and even put to death for it. And so while he was in prison the first time, there wasn't enough just cause. There weren't enough people willing to come and testify against him. By the second time he is arrested in Rome, uh, he is now pretty much uh, destined to die a martyr's death from what we understand uh, of history, uh, that uh, more than likely he was beheaded. So he writes uh, this, this uh, uh, book somewhere in that realm of about 67 A.D. or so, uh, probably from somewhere in Macedonia. It could have been Corinth. It might have been Philippi, uh, but somewhere in that region. Um, the Christ of Timothy, Christ is pictured in this particular book in a number of ways. He is referred to in chapter 2 and verse number 5 as the mediator, the mediator, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And boy, what a joy that is to know that he is our mediator. Uh, in chapter 3 and verse number 16, he's referred to as several things. He was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. He preached unto the Gentiles. He, believed, he was believed on in the world. He was received up into glory. In chapter 1, in verse 12 through 14, he is the source of all spiritual strength, love, and faith. In chapter 1, in verse 15, he came into the world to save sinners. That was his purpose. And in chapter 2, in verse number 6, Christ is pictured as the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. So Paul does a good job here of tying in the Lord Jesus Christ throughout this letter. The theme, of course, is leadership and organization of the church, uh, where he just basically is giving uh, Timothy some very, very practical helps about how to lead the church and how to organize and uh, operate the church. Uh, key verses are chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let's go there a minute and look at that. 
First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. And then the other key, set of key verses is chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. If you want to turn over to there. Chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. And again, just these charges, these exhortations for Timothy to live godly, to be steadfast in doctrine, and to preach the word with power. And the key chapter would have to be probably chapter 3, and hopefully that will help you in understanding a little bit more of this letter that Paul's written to Timothy, and that it will be a blessing to you as you study these epistles. While it's interesting that... First and Second Timothy and Titus specifically, uh, back in the 18th century, were given the name or the title of the pastoral epistles. But they are actually written to uh, young men who, yes, they are pastoring, they are leading churches, but the truth is the things that are taught in them are applicable to every Christian. And I, I want you to get that. If you don't get anything else out of it today, understand that. Folks, you can come on in. That's fine. <laughs> there you go. And... Uh, just make sure we understand that even though these are specifically written to Timothy and Titus, that the characteristics, the things that Paul uh, charges them with, are applicable to every person that has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are good things to strive for. They are things that ought to help us in serving the Lord together. All right, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. We'll start uh, the service about five minutes after 11. Father, once again we come to you. We thank you for your word and for the blessing that it is to us as it instructs our 